Well, if you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Job, chapter 1. And I know uh, many of you were not here last time, so what I'd like to do um, is just review a little bit of what we talked about last time. This is important because uh, we're essentially going to summarize chapter 1 and 2, which is the first part of the book. I'll, I'll review the, the overview in a minute here. But chapter 1 and 2 are really encapsulate the first part of the book of Job. So I want to just review that for you. And then as we venture into the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, we will introduce for you that second section of Job. If we were to summarize what we learn in Job chapter 1 and 2, this is kind of where we left off last time, uh, these are the truths that Job uh, has shown us, the book of Job, the person of Job has revealed. And what, we've, what I've done is I've turned them into um, admonitions, things for us to do, to take that inside and be able to apply it. And uh, so again, just, just by way of review, uh, let's look at where uh, we were last time, and that'll kind of set the table for uh, where we're going today. The first thing we learned last time is that we need to submit to God. See, I didn't write down that typo last time, and that means it doesn't get fixed. So let's try this here. We need to submit to God as the sovereign agent over every event of our lives. Job teaches us that God is completely sovereign over every event, every person, every circumstance, whether good or bad, significant or insignificant. Job, Job teaches that God is sovereign over all. I've said it before, I'll say it again. When all this stuff happens to Job, the Chaldeans come in, the Sabaeans come in, um, uh, the fire from heaven falls and the disease comes. Not one character, not one character in the whole book says it's the Sabaeans' fault. It's the Chaldeans' fault. Well, it was just bad weather and sometimes bad weather happens and lightning happens and a fire starts. Nobody does that. Everybody concludes that God is the sovereign agent behind everything that happens to Job. And uh, we talked about that last time, but it's important that we embrace God's sovereignty and submit to God's sovereignty in that regard. The second thing we talked about last time uh, is to embrace all that God gives you as an undeserved gift of grace. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 21 again, as uh, uh, Job uh, digests and responds to um, that machine gun-like series of tragedies that met him on that day. He says, uh, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Well, what he's saying there is, I came into the world with nothing, and I'm going to leave with nothing. Um, and then the next part of what he says helps us to understand what he means by that. He says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. What he's saying is, I didn't come into the world with anything. I shouldn't leave the world with anything, because I don't deserve anything. God is the one who gives, right? God is the one who takes away. And therefore, everything I have is a gift of what? Of grace. That's, that's a very, very powerful perspective that helps explain how a man who has undergone such suffering can say what he does here. I mean, he's, he says that, and there's ten graves right there with his ten kids in the ground. You put yourself in, in Job's 
sandal, so to speak, as, as you think about him saying that. And it's, it's amazing that he would be able to say that. And, and part of understanding how does a man, how does a woman respond to suffering in that way? Part, part of what we have to understand is Job understood everything that happened through the lens of grace. He didn't deserve anything. Uh, there was nothing that he merited. So God, if he gave him anything, that was grace. And if he chose to take it away, that was grace. So we need to embrace everything that God gives as an undeserved gift of grace. Number three, we need to acknowledge God's right to give and take away according to his good plan. That's what he's doing here. He's saying God has the right to give me what I have. He has the right to take away what I have. Uh, you, can, you can think about that in a couple of ways. He has the right to do that because he's running the universe, right? He's God. He has that right. But in another very different realm, God is all-wise, right? He's all-knowing. He is gracious. He is compassionate. Um, he has this plan that Scripture talks about, this plan that runs the whole universe. And only He is wise enough, smart enough, good enough, gracious enough to be able to orchestrate this whole thing for maximum glory to His name and for the absolute good of His people. Nobody else qualifies to do that, right? Do any of you qualify to do that? I know I don't qualify to do that. So when we think about God giving and taking away, when we think about calamity coming or blessing coming, one of, one of the places we want to run to is to say, you know, this may not seem right to me, but the reality is God is infinitely wise, infinitely uh, knowledgeable, infinitely good, and He knows far better what I need than even I do in a given situation. And, and out of that, that, um, that fatherly position, those of you are, that are parents, you understand this, we as parents know far better what is best for our children than the kids do, don't we? And if you, we can think that, that's, that's God as our Father orchestrating and bringing things about for His children. And, and we're down here sometimes going, we don't get this. We don't agree with this. But that's because we're not the Father. We're not the all-wise Heavenly Father. So He has that right to do that, both by virtue of His position as Lord of the universe, but also out of the wisdom of the fact that He is our kind, gracious Heavenly Father, who, who loves us and knows what is best for us. Oops, what did I do? There we go. Number four, we need to worship and praise God in every circumstance because He is worthy. Remember, this is, um, th this is part of what the, the three themes, and I'll review them for you in a minute. The three themes that Job is about, the first one has to do with the issue of worship. Do you remember this? Satan's charge to God was, okay, this guy Job that you're so excited about, the reality is he's only righteous, he's only holy, he's only as good as he is and worships you because you've made his life so good. Okay? You take away some of those blessings of his life and you'll see his true colors. You'll see that the only reason he worships you is because you're giving him all this good stuff. And yet the reality is, we see it in chapter 1 and we see it again in chapter 2, was that the reason that Job worshipped God? You see Satan setting this whole thing up, bringing about this calamity, 
And at the end of it, he's bending his ear, listening for the cursing, listening for Job to mock God. And instead he hears, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he thwarts Satan right in his face. That was God's plan. God's plan is to thwart Satan and his thoughts, his theories in this chapter. And what it shows us is a very, very important reality about worship. We don't worship God because He's given us nice things. We don't worship God because He's blessed our life. We don't bless God because He's provided gracious provisions of family and friends or job or health or stuff, whatever. We do thank Him for those things, but that is not the ultimate drive or motivation behind our worship. What we learn in Job is that we worship and praise God in every circumstance because He's God. Because He alone is worthy of our worship and praise. It's ultimately worship and praise is disconnected from how great we think our life is or how blessed we think our life is. Number five, we need to recognize God's absolute sovereignty without blaming him for evil. This kind of goes back to number one. You you notice that uh, verse 21, Job says, God, you did this, right? You gave. You took away. God, you are responsible for this. But, But look at the end of the chapter, verse 22. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. He didn't ascribe wrongdoing or evil to God. So, so here's the balance, okay? Here's the balance. It's so hard. It's this little line you have to walk. We affirm God's absolute sovereignty over everything, but never in a way that we blame Him for evil, okay? He's not morally responsible for evil and sin, though He is sovereign over all those things. And it's amazing. We see lived out in a real man going through real suffering. He affirms God's sovereignty without blaming him for the wrongdoing. And what a a wonderful example that is there. And then finally, we need to accept whatever God brings about in your life without sinning. Okay, That's that, that quietness of heart, that contentment that freely submits to and delights in God's wise fatherly disposal in every condition. We're accepting God, we're content with what He says, we're joyful in Him, and we're not blaming Him for the things that are evil. Okay, that's kind of where we've come. That's a summary of what we learn in chapter 1 and 2. And you got that there. I didn't write that down in the notes, so if you didn't get those last time, you can just jot that down real quick. Ah, Okay. I'll leave that up there. I told you I'd review the themes. Remember, the book of Job is really designed to teach us three... Let's try that again. Man, I failed geometry, can you tell? can't draw a circle to save my life here. Let's do that. Well... We'll just let it go for now, okay? It's not the best. I think I've dropped that circle on the ground and flattened the bottom there. Okay, here's Job. Job is living at the intersection 
of the three themes of the book of Job. Okay, The first theme has to do with the topic of worship. We just talked about that. Why do we worship? And this is all about showing that Satan's theory of why Job worships is absolutely wrong. And really, it's not ultimately about Job. It's ultimately a mock of God, isn't it? God, you've got to buy worshipers. The only reason people are going to worship you is because you make their life so nice. So this is a to- the topic, the first theme that Job introduces is the issue of why do we worship? Why should we worship? The person, all three of these themes revolve around different characters in the book of Job. The issue of worship was a theme that revolved around the character of Satan. You remember that? Because Satan is the one who brought the theme up. And so this whole issue of worship, God's going to show us what true worship is, why we should worship him. We're going to confute and and thwart the plan and theory of Satan in that. But guess who's right in the middle playing, playing, uh, living that out? As, as As God works his plan to show that Satan's a liar, it gets worked out in the life of Job. There he is right in the middle of that. Okay? The second theme, and the theme we're going to introduce today, revolves around the three friends. The three friends are the second set of characters in the book that bring about the second theme, or introduce the second theme. And the second theme is how do we understand blessing and suffering? Okay? How should we understand blessings and sufferings? What, just some of you that have read the book of Job before. Um, the three friends, what is their theory on blessing and suffering? What's their theory? Job must be a bad boy. Job must be a bad boy. Okay, why is he a bad boy? That's right. Okay. So the three friends, here's how their theology works. When we do what is right, God blesses us. When we do what is wrong, He brings suffering and affliction. Okay, that, that's the operating mode that they work out of. That, that's their practical theology. Blessings come from a good life. Suffering comes because of sin in your life. And you remember they spend all those chapters that we're going to introduce today, they spend all those chapters saying, Job, there must be some sin in your life that you need to repent of. Job says, I don't know of any sin in my life. Oh, yes, you have sin in your life. Because that was their only explanation for the suffering that was going on in his life. And guess, again, this is all about really correcting the theology of the three friends. That's really what this is about, so that we understand what is the true relationship between blessings and sufferings in a person's life. That gets played out here, but guess guess whose life is used to manifest that? Who's right in the middle of all that? There's Job. Okay. And then there's a final theme, and the final theme has to do with the issue of God's justice. And this is ultimately revolving around the character of Job himself. The thing, the topic that God has to step on the stage of history to address revolves around Job and his accusations that God is being unjust. Okay? So if you think about the book of Job, there are three main themes. The theme of worship, the theme of blessing and suffering and how we understand that, and the theme of 
justice, particularly God's justice. Worship is an issue that God's going to correct in Satan's theology. Blessing and sufferings uh, is a topic that God's going to correct in the three friends' theology. And the topic of justice is an issue that God is going to correct in Job's life. Now, here's what I want you to see. Okay, I didn't do this last time, so this is new. All three of these topics connect around the subject of... They're played out in the life of Job, but they all connect around who? Around God. Okay? Here's what I want you to see. This is all about theology proper. This is all about the doctrine of God. Why do we worship God? Because of who He is. How do we understand His blessings and sufferings? Because of His wise, good plan. How do we understand the justice of God? He is absolutely 100% righteous and just. So this is ultimately, the book of Job is ultimately, you ready? A theology lesson. It's a theology lesson. All of these things attack in some way the character of God. And the book of Job is designed to correct those false ideas that each of these characters bring in understanding the true character of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there anything more important than understanding who God is correctly? You guys know the the classic line from Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer, what comes into our mind when we think about God is, do you know what, is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Chapter 1 and 2 dealt with the issue of of worship. Now we're going to move on to circle number 2, the issue of blessings and sufferings. Okay, we've reviewed the themes. Let's jump into chapter 2, verse 11. Okay. Oh, by the way, um, th- this is really humbling when this happens. We were had the lesson last week, right? Went over to worship. We're all singing. We're singing in worship last week. In the middle of the singing... Um, I figured out the conclusion to my Sunday school lesson from last week. So it was about 20 minutes too late. But I'll I'll throw this out just because I think it's worth saying. Remember last time we talked about all the things that Job didn't know, right? And And what grace we have in understanding all that the whole Scripture reveals about suffering and trial and all of that. And here's what I should have said in my conclusion, okay? Maturity is not about having the most knowledge. Maturity in in faith is about being faithful and consistent in the application of whatever knowledge you have. Okay? That that and that that was at the end of the lesson there were these two strings that I was supposed to tie together and I didn't. Okay? What I should have said was One of the things we learn about Job is that godliness is not about having the most knowledge. It's about consistently applying whatever level of knowledge you have. And I think we see that in Job's life, and as I thought about it, really, you see that in the life of every godly person of Scripture. Okay? So, uh, guys, can we add that to the tape from last week? All right. 
Let's move on. The three friends visit. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard all of his adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place. Eliphaz, the, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. Um, it was interesting reading the commentaries on this. Uh, Job was, as chapter 1 told us, the most righteous man, the most prominent, prosperous man in this whole region. So clearly he had more than three friends. And there was a lot of speculation in the commentators about why did just the three guys show up? Now, now do you remember what Job looks like at this point? He's outside the city in the ash heap. His skin is black. He's got boils with worms coming out of it. He's bleeding. His eyes are swollen, shut from the swelling, likely. Um, He's unrecognizable. And it's likely that um, a lot of his friends, when they either heard about his condition or saw him from a distance, just kept right on walking. So before we beat up on these, on these three guys too much, uh, they, had, uh, they had the courage to come and be with Job in, in, in the plight and, and uh, ugliness of his condition. A guy named Bildad is from Shua, and commentators have no idea where that is, so we don't know where that is. Then there was Eliphaz. He was from Taman which is southeast of the Dead Sea in the region known as Edom. Let me show you a map here, okay? And then I'll, I'll, come, I'll come back to this so you can write that down if you want to do that. Uh, okay. Uh, Israel, here's Jerusalem. This is the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, you oriented. This whole area down here is the region of Edom. Now, where, where do we get that name Edom? Do you remember? Esau. Okay, this is the region where, remember, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau? This is the region that Esau settled in, and all of his descendants settled here. Taman is right here. Okay, so in fact, if um, in Genesis 36, um, Esau had a son named Eliphaz. Eliphaz had a son named Taman, which is probably where the name of the city comes from. So, obviously the same Eliphaz that was Esau's son is not the same Eliphaz here. We don't think it is. But it's related It's related to their family. So, so this guy is likely a descendant of Esau. And uh, Taman, the city of Taman, is named after, really, um, Esau's uh, grandson, Taman. Okay. Now, now where's Job at? Job is over here somewhere in northern Arabia in the land known as Uz. Okay. Um, if you do the math, Eliphaz traveled over a hundred miles to visit Job. Okay. So, so this is a true dedicated friend. This isn't like, you know, you jump in your car, you jump on an airplane or hit the train and you're there. I mean, this is probably walking. Maybe a camel or a mule or something like that. Okay, so Eliphaz is from Timon, southeast of the Dead Sea there. Uh, descend, and I gave you the Genesis 36 reference in case you want to look that up. That's where it talks about Esau's sons 
One of his sons was named Eliphaz. His grandson was Timon, uh, giving some historical background to those names. And then Zophar was from uh, Namath, and um, we don't know where that is either. Okay, So there's two places we don't know. Pretty, pretty good on Timon there. But uh, if Eliphaz came from 100 miles away, it's, it's likely as well that uh, his other friends came from a distance. Um, but they came. Now, now notice what it says here, looking back at the text. It says, they came, verse 11, to sympathize with him and to comfort him. Look at verse 12. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance... They did not recognize him. I asked you guys a few weeks ago, have you ever, have you ever gone to visit somebody in the hospital? Maybe they've been in a car accident. Uh, or maybe they've had some sort of major uh, stroke or so, something like that where they've had major complications. And you walk in and the first thing you see are machines and hoses and wires and IVs and medicine and you're, you know, you're looking for your friend, you're looking for your loved one, and, and you, can't even, you can't even see who's in the bed because all the stuff. And then when you get through, you navigate through all that, and you get there, you may see your loved one. And I don't know if you've ever seen somebody in a major car accident where they are so disfigured, their body is so swollen, uh, their skin has been discolorated, um, and you look and you say, that's my friend, that's my family member. Job was so disfigured, when his friends saw him, they said, no, that can't be him. That can't be Job. Um, that's, that's the extent of, of whatever this, this physical affliction was. It was so bad, he was unrecognizable, not, not to casual acquaintances, to his friends. And as a result, they raised their voices and they wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Another sort of ancient Near Eastern practice of mourning. And again, uh, what, what friends, they sat down in the ashes, in the ash heap with him, to be with him for seven days and seven nights, and nobody said a word because his pain was so great. You ever sat with somebody like that? Where they're hurting so much and you're so taken back by everything, you don't know what to say. That's what's going on here. Now, this now starts, chapter 3 and following, what's called the debate section in the book of Job. And let me just explain to you how this is going to work, okay? Um, because usually where people get confused in the book of Job is in this section. You start reading all this back and forth of dialogue, back and forth, and you don't know who's speaking. You guys understand, this is, this is poetry, but it's narrative, Okay, Some of you are wondering, if the book of Job belongs back in the patriarch times, why is it in, in our Bibles right before Psalms? Why isn't it back in the Torah? Why isn't it back in, in, in those early historical sections? And the answer is, it's put here because of the genre. It's put here with all the other poetic books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. 
That's why it sits here. So it's poetry, but it's narrative. It's dialogue. And that's part of what makes... This is one of the hardest... You guys can pray for me. This is one of the hardest sections in Scripture to translate. Um, the, the vocabulary is goofy. The grammar is goofy. It's poetry, which is its own silly uh, uh, rules and game. And, um, and it's hard to read. But what I want to do is offer you uh, uh, an outline of, of what happens because I think it will help you to think through... Uh, the book, okay? This dialogue section, or as they call it, the debate section, goes through three cycles. Okay? If you can think of it like this, Eliphaz is going to speak first. Then Bildad is going to speak. Then Zophar is going to speak. And then they're going to do it all over again. Okay? Eliphaz speaks, then Bildad speaks, then Zophar speaks, and then they do it all over again. And you see that cycle three times in the book of Job. Okay? So that can kind of help you navigate. There is actually a pattern going on here. Eliphaz is going to speak, and then Job is going to respond. Then Bildad will speak. Job will respond. Then Zophar will speak. And Job will respond. And then, like I said, they'll do it all over again. And the book follows that pattern until we get to Mr. Zophar in the third round. Okay? Because remember, this is going to happen. This, this little cycle is going to happen three times. And when we get to Zophar's third turn, maybe just he finally saw the wisdom of it. Maybe he had nothing to say. He skips his last speech. His third speech he doesn't do. So Job goes right into his speech. Okay? So hopefully that will help you to um, navigate through the section. Um, do you want the verses? Would that be helpful? The verses that, that goes with? I'll give them to you real quick. This Eliphaz, he, he speaks in chapter 4, 1, you know, I'll do this. I'll print this for you guys. I'll print it for you next time, okay? That's a lot of verses for you to write down. Okay, but just for now, just see the pattern, okay? That's the pattern and flow of the speeches here. Okay, now, I want to I talk to you just for a minute, <laughs> uh, now that you kind of understand the flow, because Job is going to speak, and then Eliphaz is going to respond, and then it's going gonna, it's gonna to kind of go go through this little cycle here. I want to talk to you about the uses of suffering for a moment because what we're going to see in Job's speech here, I should have told you this is going to be a whiteboard morning. That's why you have lots of blank space in your notes there. I need to provide you guys with colored pencils or something. Uh, let's. Can we talk just about the, the uses of suffering for a minute? We've talked a little bit about this before, but we're going to introduce a new one today. And, and I want to I tell you about it before we get into the text so you can be looking for it, okay? Suffering has what we might call a pedagogical use. A pedagogical use. What I mean by that is suffering teaches us things. Suffering instructs us in who God is, in who I am. Suffering is used by God pedagogically to, to teach, to instruct. And we've seen that in the book of Job already, haven't we? 
Suffering also has a a revelatory use. Suffering reveals my heart, doesn't it? Suffering, as, as my old professor used to say, is like the squeezing of a sponge. You don't know what's inside the sponge until it gets squeezed. And that's what suffering does. It, it squeezes the sponge of our heart, so to speak, and it reveals inside of me. I've mentioned the, the John Newton quote. He says, um, um, help me, Greg, afflictions likewise do us good. Okay. I wish I had brought the quote. He, he, says, he says, in our hearts are sin that lie dormant, that lie undetected like nests of vipers. And then Newton says, the rod of affliction arouses them so that we see them in all their ugliness. That's what suffering does. Suffering squeezes that. It arouses the vipers in our hearts so we go, that's in me? And we see it, not so that we can go, oh, no, but so we can go, that, I need to repent of that. I need to turn to, to the Lord with that. So there's a pedagogical use. Uh, suffering teaches me things. There's a revelatory use. I learn things about my own heart. There's an optometric use. an optometric use in that suffering allows me to see things that I could not see before. I, I've been, and like Lisa and I were talking about this this morning, I've needed to go to the eye doctor for about three months now, okay? I, I'm overdue and, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a candidate for retinal detachment because I'm so uh, nearsighted and it's very important I go to the eye doctor. And um, one of the things I always do, you, know, you sit down in the chair and they put your prescription in, can you read the chart? And, and you're thinking, I'm seeing just fine until they put the chart up there and you go, F? No, it's an E. Oh, okay. E? A? Okay. Suffering does something to your sight. Suffering is like when they put that thing in front of you and they, they, they dial in your prescription and you go, oh, wow, now I can see the bottom line. That's what suffering does. Suffering gives you the ability to see things that you did not see before. And that's the whole point. We talked about it last week in 2 Corinthians 12. We don't see the depth of God's grace. We don't see the extent of His power. We don't see the goodness of His... We don't see any of those things as clearly as we see them in suffering. So there's, there's a, call it an optometric use, okay? Sorry, I'm borrowing from the, the eye doctor there. There's also a sanctifying use. Sanctifying use. Sanctifying, that, that's Romans 8. We saw that last time, right? God is using the all things of my life to make me more like Christ, to conform me to the image of His Son. There's a pedagogical use, a revelatory use, an optometric use, a sanctifying use... There's also an authenticating use. An authenticating use. That's 1 Peter 1. Suffering, when I go through it, refines me and tests me, and it shows what? That my faith is real. A tested faith is an authentic faith. An untested faith 
is at best a suspicious faith. That's what Peter is trying to teach in 1 Peter chapter 1. Again, this is, this is review from last time, okay? And finally, this is my word of the week, okay? There is an inquisitional use. I had to look it up, I admit it. An inquisitional use, okay? And that's what we're going to see right here, okay? Inquisitional use means this. Suffering causes me to ask questions that normally I would not ask. Okay? You follow me? An inquisitional use. Suffering causes me to ask questions that I ordinarily would not ask. Okay? Now, let me, let me show you what I mean here. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Afterward... It's been seven days. His friends are there in the ash heap, mourning, weeping with him. Day seven rolls. Actually, we don't know if it was longer than that or not. Chapter 3, verse 1. Afterward, Job opened his mouth, and he curses the day of his birth. Job cracks. Listen to what he says, verse 2. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which said, A boy is conceived, may that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let the darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. And as for that night, let darkness seize it. Let no, let not re- let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to arouse Leviathan. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light but have none. Let it see the bre- neither let it see the breaking of dawn. Because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? There's a question you don't ask unless you're going through severe suffering. Why did I not come forth from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Why did the breasts that I should suck? For now, I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I I would have been at rest. When kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold or who were filling their houses with silver or like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be as infants that never saw light. There the wicked cease from raging and there the weary are... Re- What's he saying? If I was dead, if I had never been born, I would not be suffering like this. I would be much better off. Verse 19, the small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Here's another amazing question. Look at verse 20. Why is light given to him who suffers? What's the point? Why have truth? Why have insight? Why have prosperity? Why have those things if you're just going to suffer it all away? Why is life, end of verse 20, why is life given to a bitter soul? You know, I've had people in my office, in counseling, 
ask the exact same questions. If this is God's plan for me, or, or, or push, push God out of it, if this is suffering, if this is my life, why did God even let me come, come to live? Why? If this is what marriage is like, why did God not keep me single? If this is what parenthood is like, why, didn't, why did God give me children? Suffering causes us to ask questions, good questions, life-changing questions that otherwise we wouldn't ask. Verse 21, people who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than hidden... He's digging for death more than hidden treasure? who rejoice greatly. They exult when they find the grave. They die and then they get excited, Job says. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my groaning comes at the sight of my food and my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me. What's the fear? The fear that his suffering will never end. You ever talk to anybody who was depressed? You ever talk to anybody who is suicidally depressed? What's the mark of someone who's truly suicidal, do you know? Absolute, utter hopelessness. They don't see any other way out other than to kill themselves. And do you see that, that this man of God this godly, righteous man, this man who blesses God in the midst of great affliction, has now spiraled down in despair to the place where the only hope he sees is his own death. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible for a godly believer to be depressed even severely? You better believe it. Hopelessness. Chronic pain. You see this with people uh, that have chronic pain issues. Their pain is so significant, their only hope is to end it. And we don't have time, but cross-reference Psalm 38... Lamentations chapter 3, those are other examples in Scripture. Uh, Jeremiah in the one, David in the other, who went through such affliction in their depression. Listen, um, listen to some of the questions that Job, offered, Job asks here. Oops, did I not put those in there? I'll just read them to you. Chapter 3, verse 11. Why didn't I die at birth? Why didn't I die at birth? Job 3.20, why is light given to him who suffered? To him who suffers. Verses 21 and 22, why does God keep people alive who wish to die? Flip the page over to chapter 7. I want to show you a couple more. Look at chapter 7, verse 17. 
This is the inquisitional use of suffering. Suffering causes us to ask questions that otherwise we wouldn't ask. Look at chapter 7, verse 17. This is still Job, okay? What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him? Isn't that a great question? Why do you care about me, God? That's Psalm 56. You've taken account of my wanderings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not all in your book? Why? Why would this high and lofty, exalted God care about me? Is that a great question? Look down, chapter 7, verse 21. Why then do you not pardon my transgression? And take away my iniquity. For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. You know what Job says? Job is saying, God, if this is all the result of son's sin in my life, why won't you forgive me? Wow. Why won't you forgive this? What is it about this sin that I can't see, God, that you keep afflicting me? Instead of forgiving me. Do you know there are people who are convinced that they have done things that God can't possibly forgive them for? And it keeps them from the cross. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. One more. The questions that suffering causes us to ask. That's what we're looking at here. Chapter 9, verse 2. Two. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so. Watch this. How can a man be in the right before God? How can a man be right before God? Isn't that a great question? We know we're sinners, right? We know He's holy. We know He's good. How can we ever be right before Him? Do you see what God is doing? Do you see what He's doing? He's he's bringing up these huge questions, these life-changing questions, these these eternity-changing questions through suffering. And not only... Remember, Job's in the middle of this thing, right? Job's in the middle living this out. And God is using Job in the midst of his suffering to raise these questions because his friends have embraced a false gospel, a false theology. And God is using Job to bring these questions up, to get them out on the table, so that at the end of the book, God can reveal himself and show the truth of what's going on. These are some of the things God is doing in suffering. These are good things. These are life-changing things. And as you, if, if you're reading through Job with us, as we read through this, this section, the debate section, the section that everybody speeds through in their Bible reading plan, come on, admit it. Slow down. Take your highlighter and highlight 
all the really good questions that Job asks. That's part of what we're supposed to understand in this section. Okay? Put a comma in your notes, and we'll pick it up next time. Let's pray.